Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps. Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to MLOps Live. I'm Sabine and joined as always by my co-host, Steven. Hi, everyone. Welcome. And with us today, we have Delina Ivanova. Hello, Delina. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Welcome. Our topic today is going to be managing data and machine learning teams to deliver value. So, Delina, you are currently the director of analytics at Mistplay, right? And that is a loyalty platform for mobile gamers. So can you just quickly tell us a little bit about your role there? Yeah, for sure. So Misplay is startup. It's a loyalty platform for mobile gamers. I like to think of it as kind of the Netflix of mobile games. So effectively, we have a platform that recommends games to users. Users can download those games and ultimately earn rewards for playing them. And I lead the analytics team. So that includes everything from commercial to product to marketing analytics So any sort of work we have around reporting, deep dives, experimentation, and any decision modeling will live in my team. Awesome. So previously, you've been the Associate Director of Data and Insights at HelloFresh, which I'm sure many are familiar with, the world's leading meal kit company. But you've also done some teaching, right? Or you're still doing teaching. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So outside of my day job, I do teach some data science courses, machine learning courses um, here in Canada at a few different universities. But yeah, I, I love teaching. I think it's one of the things that makes me most excited about the world of data is that it's now quite accessible. There's lots of education out there and ways for people to get their hands on information. So I think it makes the field really accessible so that anybody can kind of build a career But really, that's my focus with teaching as well, of how do I make some of these concepts um, easy to understand and relevant for people from different backgrounds? And how can they then use some of those learnings to build a career in data science or machine learning, whatever they're interested in? Certainly. And we'll get into that a little bit later with the questions as well. So just to do a bit of housekeeping here before we head into the questions, a reminder that this is an interactive Q&A. So if you're with us here live, you can just raise your hand in Zoom We'll unmute you. You can also type your question in chat and we'll pick it up as soon as possible. So whatever you want to ask of Delina, make sure to take the chance. All right. So Delina, to warm you up a little bit, we tend to have this one minute challenge. Could you explain to us in about one minute how smart data can improve how businesses operate? Yeah, I think you're referring to my tagline on LinkedIn, but I like to call, I like to think of data products. Really anything is a data product where we have data sort of involved in the decision making process. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a very complicated AI model. A lot of times a smart data product could be an automated Excel sheet that can give you an output that you can use for decision making. But to me, this is really about building products that can help automate decisions that can really take the kind of easy or sort of low value activities out of our data day life so that we can actually focus on the things that are difficult, which are strategy, thinking ahead, trying to keep track of where the world is going, what's going to be relevant today, tomorrow, and five years, and how do we start to prepare for that future because technology is evolving so quickly. So to me, it's really about building tools and products that can help businesses make decisions quickly, automate decisions that don't need to be something that's 
thought about every single day and really focus on the big things, the things that drive value. Awesome. And that was pretty much one minute. So well done. Uh, all right. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more about how you use data and MLOps to drive business value in your recent roles at HelloFresh and maybe how you're doing so now at Mistplay? Yeah, for sure. Maybe I'll start a, start a little bit with HelloFresh. Um, again, I think everybody hopefully is familiar with that business model, but that was definitely one of the most interesting roles I've had from a data perspective because I think HelloFresh has a very, very complex business. From a data perspective, it's one of the most sort of complicated areas to use data and to really make uh, make valuable data products for the business. And the reason is because you not only have physical product that you're dealing with, but you have a loyalty program. And it's not really a loyalty program, but it's a loyalty intended program where you want people to subscribe on a weekly basis. But in addition to having a physical product, you also can't hold any inventory because all the food is really fresh. And you also have a completely personalized, customized product. So from an operations capacity, that's really complicated to actually execute. And then if you think about Canada and the US, these really big countries where you have very large distances to drive and deliver the product, then that's also another layer of complexity where we have to think about how do we strategically take something from point A to point B. And so at least from my experience, that's one of the most complicated businesses I've worked with from that perspective. Every business has their own different complexities. And I'll, I'll talk about misplay in a second, but that experience, there's a lot of complexity there. And so from data perspective, at the time that I joined, you know, at least in the Canadian business, we were just sort of building up and ramping up our data team. So we really in two years went from having very sort of rudimentary data capabilities to building more complex models and adopting some better infrastructure and being able to build and deploy complex tech ecosystems really to support the business. And how does the business get value from that? So I think at different stages in a business's life cycle. So that challenge of something where you have a tight timeline to actually delivering a physical product, you're always going to have to prioritize something like operations because you need to make that run smoothly. And so there's a number of data applications, right? Like optimizing production schedules and optimizing manufacturing and optimizing logistics and delivery schedules, for example, being able to identify which partners or which suppliers work well or don't work well. So there's lots of operational impact that can be made very quickly. And then on the revenue side, is really about marketing. And the other really big challenge with something like HelloFresh is that you don't really have a lot of data because it's not a digital product. So you have data about people's interaction with your app and website, but once they get their box, you don't really have much to go off of until they give you a review. So you're not really involved in that experience of the customer once they have your product. And so trying to get understanding of customers and the way that traditional digital company could use behavioral data or customer journey data to understand what is a customer like or they don't like, you can't really do that during the actual experience of a customer. So you're really dependent on having to collect that data from people. And so there's this whole idea of how do we incentivize people to answer our surveys? How do we incentivize feedback? And we all know that feedback is subjective and people tend to really give feedback when they feel on kind of the extremes, either good or bad about a product. But if they're somewhere in the middle, they don't necessarily give you that. So then connecting behaviors that we do have with behaviors we don't have to try to make some assumptions, tons of interesting applications there. 
but yeah, so HelloFresh really complicated. Misplay also really complicated, but from a different perspective. So here we don't have a physical product, which is good. And inventory adds a layer of complexity that again, all businesses that carry inventory will, will have to deal with this to some extent. But misplay, we don't have inventory. So that's good, but it's complex from other perspectives because we are sort of, we're an ad tech platform. So we really want, we sort of have this publisher side of the business, which is about how do we onboard the right games to users? And then we have a user side of the business, which is around how do we get users to use misplay to play their games? And so you kind of have two separate groups of clients that you're trying to please. And it's sort of a chicken and an egg problem, right? So do I attract users by having the right games, but I'm not going to attract the right games if I don't have the right users. And it's the same type of problem that Netflix and, and some of these other type of companies would face. And we see that at least in the video industry where people now have such low barriers to entry in being able to get a new subscription service, you know? And so when your favorite show drops off on Disney and it goes on Netflix, then you might switch to Netflix or vice versa. So you might kind of jump around between service providers to seek the show that you want. And some of these platforms are now trying to create their own content to become attractive to users so that they can then also attract other content that's being created by other providers. So that's sort of the challenge in, in that business. We have a lot more data because we're a digital product. So we're really ingrained in the user experience. We get to see how users interact with our product. And so that's really good. And we can create a lot of value for our end users, but also our commercial clients from that regard. But yeah, the complexities are really become more about balancing those different objectives in this business. I said a lot of things, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly sounds like there's more than enough challenges there <laughs> in either scenario. Okay, so moving a little bit more into the actual management side of things, if you just imagine that you start in a new position, what do you do as a data science manager in your first 30 days in office? Yeah, I mean, good question. I think there's kind of two things that I typically do. First, it's really understanding the team as it exists today. And what is the team working on? If there's an existing team, sometimes there isn't a team. But if you do have an existing team and you're coming in as a new leader, what are they working on? What would they like to work on? What opportunities do they see? Anyone who's probably worked in data roles has seen kind of similar challenges, right? So we always have the challenge of balancing stakeholder needs where they might have a lot of stakeholders want something very quickly versus you actually need time in data science and machine learning to build solutions because typically you can't do them very quickly. You need a lot of time. You need time to experiment. You need time to prototype. You need time to test. The whole ethical AI topic always comes up as well. And so I typically try to understand what is the team working on and where are the existing challenges from the team perspective. And then I always try to spend a lot of time with stakeholders in my first 30 days. So just understanding what are their needs and are those needs being met today by the data team? And where could we see improvements? Is there any particular improvements? Why do they think that those things are important? And I try to understand the business priorities and how each stakeholder perceives them. So often you will have stakeholders that have competing priorities where each of them are trying to drive and are accountable for their own sort of output. And data science is often a dependency for other stakeholders' business needs. And so you need to figure out where you fit in that and where your team fits in that and sort of how you can make an impact very quickly, but also buy yourself enough time to work on those higher value projects. Mm -hmm. So as a follow-up question, where and how do you tend to get stakeholders involved in the project lifecycle? Yeah, I like to involve stakeholders from the beginning. I think it's really important 
So projects like data projects can come from two places. Either they are a stakeholder request and stakeholder may have an idea. And so they might come and say, I want to be able to target this particular type of client and I need to know everything about them and I need to have a personalized targeting model, let's say. So stakeholders often have very good ideas and they have ideas because they see the business and they know intuitively what they want to do. They know intuitively what might work in a business setting. AI really helps us automate that intuition and make it more broad, right? And and to make it applicable to many different types of users or customers. So if a request comes from a stakeholder, I typically try to involve them from the beginning. I think it's important for them to be 100% part of the development process. They probably don't need to be there for the data exploration, building a model and things like that. But Ultimately, a machine learning model or anything we deploy is only as successful as its applicability to a business. And it's only successful if it's being used by the stakeholders that it's intended for. And so if you don't include them, they have no incentive really to use what you built. And why wouldn't they just continue operating on intuition? But if an idea comes from the data team where maybe the data team has an idea about how they could be doing something or they have they see an opportunity... I typically will have a kickoff with stakeholders to share the idea. Like I might socialize the idea one-on-one with a few people to see, does it land? Does it make sense? Is there interest? And if there is interest, then I'll typically schedule some sort of kickoff with everybody that's interested and kind of talk through what the process might be and just to gauge interest on who wants to be actively involved, who kind of wants to be informed. If you ever remember those sort of stakeholder matrices where you can kind of analyze who has high influence and high interest in a project and you want to really involve those people versus some people might just be interested but not really need to engage that much. And so you can kind of get a sense of who to involve and and to what level, but always there should be some level of stakeholder involvement in any projects that I do. Right. And so you kind of end up in between the teams and the stakeholders in many ways, I'm sure. So could you maybe get into a little bit more into how do you set goals and KPIs to show, you know, the ROI on projects to the stakeholders? Yeah, for sure. So I think with projects, when you're kicking off a project, usually there's some sort of back of the envelope calculation on what that project is worth. So data teams should always have a way of assessing value. And this can be difficult because sometimes there is obvious value. Like if we automate something, we can reduce costs. Or if we're able to reach a new user base more effectively and they spend more money with us, we can increase revenue. So sometimes the value is very obvious. Sometimes it's less obvious, but it's necessary. Like creating ethical models, for example, ethics may not necessarily contribute directly to revenue and cost, or at least not in a measurable impact immediately. But long-term, it will. your brand is going to be worth a lot more for operating as an ethical company for example. And so I think step one is always to kind of think about and sort of think about AI projects or data projects in four categories. So either revenue generation, cost reduction, risk management, or some sort of user or employee experience. And I first try to divide them in those four categories and then assess if it's a revenue or cost What do we think is a reasonable reduction in cost, for example? So in operations, I might say, you know, if we automate this process, a reasonable estimate for reducing cost could be 10 to 20%. And if we are able to achieve that, then what would the outcome be and and what would the total savings be on an annualized basis? So that gives me something to work with. Same with a revenue side. The hard question is, what is reasonable, right? And how do you assess reasonability? And so, for example, if you have, let's say, a process on the cost side, if you're thinking about manufacturing, for example, and you have a process that you want to automate with some sort of AI solution, right, or data solution, 
you first have to assess, is the data there? Is it clean? Is this even possible? And if it's not possible, because sometimes you may have dependency on data being created by external sources, you may have dependency on other people to manage data. So maybe it's not feasible until a certain point in time. And so really even a 10% benefit may not be feasible. And if it's not feasible, then maybe that's not the right time to do that project. And then on the revenue side as well. So you can do some quick analysis to say past behaviors when we've done maybe something similar or introduced a new product or something like that, what has been the incremental lift? And is it reasonable to assume that if we put more time and energy, we're going to see a bigger incremental lift? And if so, then 10 to 20% maybe becomes a reasonable measure. So You've got to kind of work through what is reasonable, what's a reasonable increase. You can do that with some quick analysis. And then we typically build a small business case to say, we think there's whatever millions of dollars, $5, $10 million opportunity in this particular project. And then the second question becomes the effort. So how much effort is it going to be to actually productionalize something like that? And again, I'll speak a little bit to my experience in HelloFresh, but in HelloFresh, whenever we worked on operations projects, there isn't, it's not just about putting a model into production because you have a physical production line that needs to also adopt whatever output of your project exists. So that means actually reviewing process, getting people aligned to what the new process is going to be, figuring out how to integrate with technology. And I mean, actual software that's being used in production lines that isn't on the cloud and isn't a web app that exists somewhere in AWS. So figuring out how to integrate with legacy software or uh, production software um, is a very different problem than, for example, saying we have a new lifetime value model, which we can produce an output, we can predict lifetime value and dump that in a database, which we can then access very easily and use in marketing campaigns. Also difficult to do but it's a different type of of difficulty. So from an effort perspective, we have to think about that. And the effort for something where you're integrating with real process is going to be big from that. Again, process changes, people impact, thinking about the people that have to adopt this from the effort that's required for an example where it's a digital change and you don't have as much integration to do. It's more about getting buy-in. So getting people to actually test and validate a model. So if you do build something for a marketing team, how do you get them to actually use it? And so that's going to be a bit of an effort because then you have to do experimentation. You have to build trust that the output makes sense. And so you need to think about the time required to deliver that. And all of that's on top of the time required to actually build the model and test the model and collect data and clean data and all of the usual things we data people deal with. Yeah, I mean, wow, just thinking about all of this, I have to ask, I mean, as a data science manager, do you think it's necessary to have this strong data science background or would you still kind of maybe just a nice have in some cases? Yeah, I mean, in terms of background, data science is really a multidisciplinary field that requires many skills. And right now, I think data science and the sort of title of data science is very widely used and it means very different things in different companies. So for example, in some companies, it's really a data analyst role and maybe you need to do some statistical testing, but you may not be working on very complicated models. Some companies, it's really as a really strong technical role where you do need to have a really strong technical background. And so I would say that it really depends on where the company is and and kind of what is the job that you're looking to do, which should dictate the type of background that you're typically looking for. Also, some depending on the area of a business, like for example, with something like operations, operations research is probably the more relevant background because a lot of those data science teams will work on optimization modeling, like linear programming models, linear optimization, things like that. Whereas that's not typically something that 
maybe a marketing data science team would work on because the problems are typically not optimization problems. They're maybe maximization problems, let's say. So they might be different skill sets and different even fields of study in different areas. But I would say that it is, I would think that a background in statistics or programming for sure, I don't, the programming definitely like working with Python and or R is, is critical in SQL, of course, because you can't really get around working with big data without some of those tools. And Spark now, you know, is becoming even more popular as well. But from a knowledge-based perspective, definitely having some math, stats, quantitative understanding is really valuable. And you don't necessarily need formal education. I'm a big advocate of people being able to upskill. Again, there's tons, like I don't necessarily have a formal education in statistics either, but there's so many resources and so many courses and so many books that we now have access to that there's no reason why you can't get that education through your life. So I do think it's worth spending the time to build that knowledge. And then the soft things, the last big skill set area is really the soft skills. And this is how to work with people, what motivates people, how do you get your idea out there? How do you communicate effectively so that people understand what you're saying, they agree with you, or if they may disagree with you, that's fine as well. But how do you handle that? How do you convince people that what you want to do is the right thing? Being very open to feedback is hugely important in data science. It's Data is a team sport, really. There's many different ways to solve the same problem. And so having that kind of iterative mindset that nothing is ever final and it's really just iterating. We're always trying to get better and trying to find new ways to do things. I do consider that a skill set because it's not common depending in different fields. It's not as iterative, but in data science, it is a very iterative process. So you do want to have that ability to effectively like give constructive feedback, get constructive feedback, interpret that and apply it in a way that's going to be meaningful to your output. So I would say a mixed bag of skills, but all critical to making a good data scientist. Certainly. And my next question was going to be like, what do you see as the most critical skills to have for effective leadership? and management of data teams. So I guess it's this combination of suitable technical background, aptitude for learning, and then these people's skills. Yeah, I think depending on your role and and the scale of leadership. So I think if you're a direct manager to people who are executing, you know, a few things. So you have to have some technical background for sure, because you need to be able to give guidance to people. You need to be able to review their code. You need to be able to catch things. You need to be able to help them think about different ways of solving a problem and If they're not familiar with the subject matter, for example, having sufficiently broad knowledge to give them guidance on what to, what questions to ask or what tools to try or what techniques to try is really important for a manager. So how do you be that coach? But you should also be able to be a player. So if somebody does come in and needs help with their code, you should be able to jump in and help them, help them fix it and and give them guidance on how to build their code, how to structure their query, how to think about the problem. Critical thinking, I think critical thinking is a skill that I don't know the status of that skill in society today, but it is really, really important. And when I say the status, I mean that I've seen lots of views on how we have a lot of advancements in, in tools today, like ChatGPT, obviously all of these things have come out and access to information is so simple now. And even with Stack Overflow, let's say if you're dealing with a programming problem, back in my day when I started working, we used Excel a lot at work and Excel was the same thing where you could very easily roughly describe what you were trying to do and somebody's already solved the problem for you. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. It's a good thing because there's lots of information on how to solve the problem and that can ultimately inspire you to solve different problems. And you can kind of build your knowledge and then come up with new ideas. 
but does it also on the flip side, maybe prevent people from being patient enough to work through a problem and sort of sitting on something and saying, how would I solve this? And kind of coming up with that logic themselves, because being able to think logically, not just from a coding perspective, but just in general, from a problem solving perspective, and being able to just sit on a problem and think about it and come up with a series of steps and actions to do to take or series of questions to ask to help you solve the problem is to me what critical thinking is and being able to kind of question yourself like is that the right question to be asking and is there a different way to ask that question and sort of working through the relevance of your question so that very important for leadership again critical thinking and that also translates into kind of working with stakeholders because sometimes people have ideas and they themselves may not know how to operationalize that like they may say you know i saw that netflix is doing this or amazon is doing this can we try it and that's a very broad statement but as a data scientist you have to take the idea and you have to actually make it real. So you do need to think about, does that idea actually make sense? And how do I know that it makes sense for the business that I'm in? Is it relevant here? And in something like HelloFresh, we always sort of spoke about this because it's not that the customized order problem hasn't been solved before. Amazon's been doing it now for a long time, but Amazon can carry inventory. They don't have perishable food products. And so that's a fundamental difference between the two business models. They can have a big distribution center. They can hold inventory for a period of time and HelloFresh couldn't. And so when we're thinking about just similarities of, well, Amazon's doing this, can we do this too? Someone in a leadership position of the data team needs to be able to have that critical thinking to say, does that make sense? Does it make sense for this business? Would it work here? How would we answer that question? So critical thinking is on top of my list. And also I would say for, again, data teams being able to provide guidance, stakeholder management, and also from a team management perspective, I guess I could talk, speak a little bit about how to motivate different team members, but really understanding what motivates team members and how to keep them engaged, how to keep them inspired, how to make sure that they are doing their best work and they're feeling supported by a leader, by a manager. So those I would say are the top kind of skills. Feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30-second pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so we help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app. You can organize and display it however you want, search, debug, and compare experiments, datasets, and models, save your production-ready models to a centralized registry, and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So circling a little bit back here to stakeholders and organizational matters. So what in your experience would you say are some of the organizational hurdles that managers need to overcome when managing data teams? And maybe you could share some war stories from your career if you have any. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm very lucky. I've worked with a lot of really great stakeholders and people that have been fantastic partners to the team, but I can speak a little bit about what it takes to build that partnership. And one of the sort of worst experiences that most data teams have, and when I was working at the bank a very long time ago, before data and analytics and data science and all these things were things that people cared about. And actually, before we even had a role called data science, we used to have business intelligence people in teams. And they were really treated as just hindsight afterthought. Like it was kind of like the business made the strategy and then said, okay, business intelligence team, tell me the outcome and give me the revenues for the last year. And 
to me, I've always been in these data-driven roles and I always hated them because the team actually can add so much value because it's, I could give you the revenues for the last 10 years, but actually a better question is tell me which campaigns worked really well in over the last 10 years and which ones didn't. Like that's a much better question because that can actually help set a strategy to help inform something. So to me, the worst thing about being in a data team when you don't have good stakeholders is if you have the type of stakeholders that don't value what a data team does. And they kind of just see the data team as SQL people who just pull a query, create an Excel sheet. And worst of all, like, can you make this dashboard so I can download it in Excel? We've all heard the stories that, you know, business stakeholders just want some output and they want to do it themselves. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against self-serve analytics. Self-serve analytics is a really, really good thing. But I do think that with stakeholders, it's important that they are they learn how to ask the right type of questions. And most data people will probably say that. But how do you actually build that rapport, that relationship with stakeholders? So from my experience, a lot of times stakeholders maybe don't know what questions to ask. So it comes down to, do they know how to work with a data team? And it's not a bad thing if they don't. It's very much possible that they just haven't worked with one before because data, as much as it's everywhere, there's also a lot of industries today that don't use data that much and don't really have analytics teams. Like healthcare is kind of up and coming right now with a bit of focus, but it's still not as prevalent as digital companies. And we often think about tech and we think that everybody operates that way, but they don't. Manufacturing, logistics, our agriculture, just the food space, groceries, health, like pharma, like these are some industries that don't use data that extensively. And so if you work in any of these, you're probably going to run into people that just don't know how to work with you. So number one is educating people. And when you do get requests, trying to help them understand like, hey, great question, but here's more that we could do for you. Or here's a different way we could answer that that might be more helpful. Or even just pushing back and saying, you know, that's a great question, but can you tell me about the problem you're trying to solve? And when they tell you the problem. So being a good facilitator and being able to get people to tell you what they actually want or what they're actually trying to solve for is usually the first step. And then the second thing I typically focus on is once you sort of have that culture where your team, the data team feels comfortable asking questions back and trying to truly understand the problem versus just answering simple questions, then it's about how do we move away from low value work? So that could mean automating SQL queries. It could mean enabling self-serve analytics. And this could be even just creating a set of pre-written SQL queries that stakeholders could run themselves or dashboards that have just data dumps, like maybe stakeholders have asked for a bunch of specific things. They want to be able to do their own pivot tables. That's fine. Create a bunch of dashboards so they can answer those questions themselves. And that's good for you as a data team because it takes that low value work off your plate. And then you as a data team can now start to focus on higher value stuff. And then I typically try to deliver one kind of big impact project, at least I found in my last few roles that sometimes the project doesn't have to be complicated, but if it's simple and makes a big impact, then that earns trust in the data team. And then the stakeholders start to see, well, okay, if we let them focus on a bigger project, actually, this is going to be much more impactful than some of these smaller things that we've been asking them to do. And ultimately, I like to think of the your role as a data leader is really to buy your team time. And so try to kick out a few sort of useful projects for stakeholders very quickly that might be simple, but are going to be useful and address the immediate need. And that gives you time to work on the bigger impact things. And then when you've worked on at least one big impact project and you've deployed that, then you have that trust from the stakeholders to actually spend more time building other big impact projects. So that would be generally my advice to building those relationships. But there's really no successful outcome of a data team if you don't have those good relationships with stakeholders. Absolutely. So circling back a little bit to the teams that you manage, 
You mentioned the importance of kind of understanding what motivates your team members, for example. But are there any other certain management techniques that have worked well for your teams in the past that you could bring up? Yeah, for sure. This Every manager is different. I think one of the biggest learnings I've had from managing teams now for several years is about understanding what people want out of a manager, right? And so for me, my style, and I'm very clear with people when I interview them that I'm pretty hands-off. Like I'm not going to tell you what to do every day. I don't like to micromanage. I don't want to review everything that you're doing. I may want to have an opinion. Like I'd like to look at it so I can give you an opinion, but I'm not going to tell you like what font to use and how to (laughs) do your job. I'm hiring people because they are good at what they do. And I honestly, I for me, because I've now worked in a few companies where there's been a lot of unsolved problems, we're dealing with a lot of unsolved problems. So I don't have the answers and I can't always give people the answers, but not everybody operates in that environment. Like some people really want more prescriptive um, delegation. They want more prescriptive guidance on here's a problem, here's how you solve it, now go execute. And I think it's really important for, as a manager, when you interview people, you have to be able to ask questions that can tell you about what that person, what they like, right? And how they work best. And so I will always ask people like, how do you work best? Tell me about the environment you thrive in. Or the two questions I really like to ask is what is a past manager? Tell me about a manager that you really liked in the past and what did you like about them? And tell me about a manager you didn't like and what you didn't like about them. And it's not a trick question. It's just meant to for me to understand how do you like working and is my style going to fit your style? Because if my style doesn't fit your style and your style doesn't fit my style, then we're going to probably clash to some extent. And so I think, and again, comfort level, uh, some people, when you're at a startup, smaller company, again, very unstructured, but people have to be comfortable working in an unstructured environment. They have to be self-organized. They have to be able to identify opportunities and maybe fill their time when their manager doesn't give them like an explicit output or something to work on. First is a big company where it's a lot more structured. Your scope is a lot smaller. You maybe don't work on all the problems, but you have a very specific department you support, for example, and it's just much more structured on how you work. So number one, for you, you have to know yourself and where you work best. And as a manager, you have to ask questions to understand who works best in what way. And at different points in your team, you're going to need different skill sets. Like sometimes you do need those people that like a very structured environment because maybe you have some analytics work or data work that is very structured and needs very repetitive, predictable work. And then you're going to have other work that isn't like that. So maybe you need a mix of both. So as a manager, you have to know what mix you need. And then once you have people on your team that fundamentally, once you know how they work and what their working style is, then you can get into motivational questions, right? Like what motivates them? I really like to build development plans with my teams. I always think it's really important for all managers to support their teams in development and just really having an open conversation. I don't expect that someone's going to be on my team forever and I don't want them to lie and say, yes, I'm going to be here forever and progress and that's my development plan. It's better to be honest about those things because then you can actually help them. You can understand what motivates them, what work they like to do, what they don't like to do. And then subsequently, what they'll be good at and what they won't be good at. And maybe there's people that have really strong technical skills from SQL Python perspective, but maybe they don't have much of a modeling background. And so when you have a project, you can pair them with someone with a modeling background that the two of them can work together to deliver an output, for example. Or if you have someone that isn't as strong technically, you don't want to give them a super technical project that maybe requires a lot of learning upfront because they may get frustrated by that unless they're interested and they've told you that they're interested. 
But yeah, so, so that's my biggest tip from management is just talk to people and be a human about it and understand what drives them, understand what they want, how they work best, and try to create an environment where people feel comfortable being honest with you. Like I would never hold anything against anybody for how they are as a person or how they work. And the more honest they are with you, the better environment you can create and the better you can kind of figure out how do I now allocate work and resource and how do I allocate work to resources so that we can create a maximum output while leveraging people's strengths and meeting their needs for development and what they're looking to learn. Awesome. So I think it's time to head into some of the community questions that we have so that we can cover them. We have a few questions here from the MLOps community Slack in particular. So Dan would like to know, do you have any frameworks for setting up culture and etiquettes in your data team? Yeah. So some things, one of the biggest things I think is important for a good culture on a data team is having a lot of social aspects or sort of good relationships within the team members. So I, and some managers may disagree with this, but I think it's really important to have strong relationships on the team where everybody is comfortable with each other. And the reason for that is because oftentimes people, if they feel uncomfortable, they're less likely to ask for help. They're less likely to share their work. They're less likely to feel comfortable in a code review, for example. They may not like feedback, for example. And it's always, it'll come from like a defensive place where they don't feel comfortable. And so if you create a really comfortable environment, so number one, I try to create a very comfortable environment. You can probably tell by my speaking style that I'm pretty casual. Like I don't take myself too seriously. I like to focus on problems at work. I don't like to focus on personal things or just, it's really about work and and collaborating with the team to work on interesting projects. And I think if you kind of keep the focus on that, you already have something in common with everybody because everybody's there because they like to work with data. So there's lots of common things to build those relationships on. So some framework, uh, frequent communication. I mean, my team now, we're fully remote, so I don't necessarily think you need to be in person for this, but we have regular chat in Slack. Like We have regular sort of a channel just for our team where we can ask questions. In my last team, we had regular game events. So every week we would just get together and play code names online just for something fun to do, just kind of chat about different movies, shows, a lot of different things like that. So frequent and regular communication with the team, both personal and work-related so that you can actually good connections within the team to me is really important for culture. And then opening up and making yourself vulnerable so that your team will feel comfortable being vulnerable. So for example, I would never mandate like mandatory code review to my team if I myself wasn't willing to share my own code and ask for it to be reviewed by the team. So anything that I ask my team to do, I will do myself as well. So I answer tickets. I will participate in code review as a presenter. I will be vulnerable and ask silly questions that may not be well thought out, just initially throwing ideas out in our common Slack channel. Because I think as a leader, that creates then space for other people to feel comfortable giving you feedback and then for them to ask questions and take your feedback. And so it's really, as a leader, your my leadership style at least is not top down. But if you want to create a culture, it, my leadership style is that we're all kind of a team. We bring different skills. Each of us brings different skill sets. So my skill set at this level might be that I'm good at prioritizing and managing stakeholders and figuring out what do we take on? What do we not take on? How do we work on the most impactful projects? And that's my role within the team. But everybody has a role and we collectively are a team that works together. So to me, that's the mindset and that ultimately helps create a good team culture. But again, may not work for everybody, but for me, that's what works. Yeah, like really putting yourself out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Matthias, also from the MLOps community, wants to know a little bit about the organization of data engineers and uh, machine learning engineers 
he's saying that, or wondering how to grow the MLE part when some DEs are interested in, in MLE or MLOps. And he's asking specifically about how you organize yourselves where you work. Do you keep data engineers and ML engineers in separate teams or do you mix and match? Yeah, good question. And engineering is one of those interesting fields right now because so where I am now at Misplay, and I haven't been here too long, but from what I understand, before we really built out the data team here, a lot of engineering work was done by analysts or by some of the software engineers. So analysts would, for example, figure out they needed a pipeline. And so then they would kind of build a pipeline and they create tables and, you know, Athena, what we use now, and then they would use Athena to query data. Now, the for a small company, this sort of distributed engineering responsibility works fine. But as the company gets a little bit bigger, it's hard not to have governance because then what happens is you, at least for data engineering, you have unstructured data models, data models that don't make sense. Different people organize data very differently. So as a data scientist, we recognize this in our users that our users operate very differently and therefore we want to create personalized products. But internally in a company, people also operate very differently that work in a company. And what may make sense to you as a way to organize a database, let's say, is it going to be very different than what makes sense the, the way somebody else might organize that same database. And so you, as the company grows, you need to have a centralized, to me at least, data engineering team. And there's two facets to data engineering. One is platform and one is pipelines. So platform is really about what is the toolbox and tool set that we're using. So if we're using Databricks ecosystem, for example, what does that look like? Where are we going to put our data? What are we using for orchestration? What are we using for data quality checks? What are we using for a data dictionary, let's say, or catalog? What are we using to deploy models? What are we using for regular analytics? What's the query engine, visualization tools? So data platform is really about figuring out that whole um, aspect of the, all the different tools we're using, how they work together, where we put things, how we organize things to make it useful for analytics and data science and machine learning, which are ultimately the stakeholders. Then you might have data engineers that are part of the engineering team. So in HelloFresh, for example, where the company was much bigger than Misplay, we had separate data engineering teams, which were responsible for building the pipelines from certain source systems to the data warehouse. So data warehouse would be designed by data platform. Data pipelines would be built by data engineers that are perhaps subject matter experts. So they might sit in supply chain or at least the HelloFresh was like this supply chain or marketing or a different part of the business. And they could sort of build pipelines for those specific parts of the business. And then you have this sort of emerging field around machine learning engineering, which is really about uh, building and deploying machine learning models. And this is really a complicated field because you could get there from multiple directions. So you could be a data engineer that then transitions into a machine learning engineer role. And you typically would come with that software background where you understand efficient code, effective code, all of that kind of stuff. But you may not have a good understanding of statistics. And so that's going to be something you might need to learn about how do machine learning models work? What's the math behind them? How do I know that it's working? How do I know that it's good? And so on. Or you might be a data scientist and maybe you have a really strong ML background, but maybe you don't have as much of that software background and maybe that's something you need to learn. Or you're interested in both and you have a good background in both and you fit that role of machine learning engineer. But typically, I would say that when a company is mature enough to be deploying sophisticated models, like especially deep learning models or even just complicated machine learning models, you for sure need to have a separate machine learning engineering function. I've seen it sit either in the engineering team or in a data science team. So I think it really depends on the level of maturity and complexity and segregation of projects that 
teams are working on, but it could be organized in one or the other. I think my initial sense is that at the beginning, when it, when the role was sort of new, it's probably kind of an in-between role between data engineering and between data science. And at some point, it probably becomes like a separate team that is part of maybe a machine learning team. So probably machine learning platform, machine learning team would be kind of a separate organization from data engineering. So data engineering really would be about make the data available. Machine learning engineering would really be about use the data to put something operational into production. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I'm sure. And uh, you touched a little bit on this already, I think. But Dimitrios, also from MLOps community, wants to know, what do you think makes managing a machine learning team different than managing more traditional software development team? Yeah, that's a good question. I think machine learning is just going to be complicated because to me, and this isn't... So there may be things I don't understand. I'll caveat this by saying that it's not a dig at anyone. (laughs) But software teams sort of have a defined kind of start and end, right? So if we think about traditional software that we're creating, it's really about, we have a set of requirements. We need to create a software that looks and feels a certain way. And then we create the software and there's a discrete starting point, discrete ending point. Once we've deployed something, it's there as a feature. And from there, we may change the feature. So we may realize people don't like it. They don't engage with it the way we thought. And so we might go back and change it. But there's a discrete ending point to creating software. But machine learning, there isn't a discrete ending point because the machine learning model at something that's in production is going to continue to change. Its performance could continue to change. It may not at all work the way that we anticipated. It could fail and it may not be a failure because of a software bug. It may be a failure because of a logical bug and how a model is designed or just how the fundamental change of data and user behavior changes that powers the model. So it's much more, it's complicated in different ways. I won't say more complicated, but it's complicated in different ways, I think, to manage a machine learning team rather than a traditional software team. Because in addition to that start and end and discrete endpoint, you also have that element of an ongoing monitoring, an ongoing assessment of, is this still working? Is this still the right thing? Do we have any logic changes? And also when we do, there's sort of an experimentation culture with both, but with something like traditional software, when we sort of run experiments to say, does this product feature work or not work? In many cases, we can simply build the feature, we can test it. And I'm not saying that it's simple because some features can be quite complicated, of course. But with machine learning, we, again, the results may continue to change a lot after we test something. And if there's a fundamental logic that works or doesn't work at different points in time, it's sort of like an ongoing assessment. And that assessment always has to be ongoing to make sure that what you're building is actually still valid in for a period of time. So to me, that's a little bit of the difference. But again, both will have various complexities depending on how complicated the tool is. Mm-hmm, certainly. And we have an anonymous MLOps practitioner in Discord who wants to know, Delina, how do you stay technical while still trying to manage people and resources in your team? Yeah, it's hard. Honestly, I find every year that I continue to manage people, I probably forget everything I know. But I mean, to be honest, actually teaching helps me a lot because when I teach on the side, I'm constantly reviewing things I already know and just constantly refreshing my knowledge and even learning new things about the things I thought I knew And so teaching helps a lot. It really helps keep you sharp on... Because you're always having to train other people. So you're always keeping very sharp on those technical skills, even if you may not use them every day at work. But I think there's just, you know, it's time and just making sure that you're dedicating time to learning and to continually to learn and being open to new things that are coming out. One of the hardest things I do believe as well is just 
the technology is changing so quickly and the new tools, new libraries, new products are coming out so quickly. And it is really difficult to keep track of everything that's coming out. But I find, you know, LinkedIn's actually a great resource now that I've sort of built up a bit of a network. People post stuff all the time and it's and there's quite a few things I save. Like if I see a new library come about out about something or a new book, it's a really good way for me to just, just quickly get a sense of, oh, wow, like this came out. That's interesting. I don't know very much about this. That's interesting. And I sort of save things that I'd like to read or I'd like to learn more about and try to find time when work is a little bit less busy or I'm not teaching as much. I try to find time to learn them. But Yeah, it's a huge challenge for any manager because you don't have the time to be as hands-on in your day-to-day as you would when you're an individual contributor. So some definitely some decay in knowledge is going to occur, but it's about prioritizing what should you be learning and maintaining knowledge on versus what should you be trusting your team to do and just being open about where your gaps are as you kind of progress. Yeah, a tough balance to strike. So we have another person in Discord who is asking... Hey, I'm just starting out my career in data science and would love to know your thoughts on how I can move up the career ladder towards becoming a data science manager. Yeah, good question. It's going from an individual contributor to a manager is always difficult. And the biggest difficulty is that you have to prove that you are able to lead and that people are going to like to work with you. And you know, the concern always from hiring managers who hire managers, is this person going to be a good resource for the individual contributors that they're managing? So I think definitely building a reputation for being a good leader, it always starts with being a good leader in your own team. So how can you, can you take leadership roles? And that doesn't have to be formal leadership. The way that I typically notice people that are strong leaders on my teams, like, are they answering questions when their teammates ask them? Are they asking good questions back? Are they engaging in code reviews? Are they engaging in trying to help their teammates? And so that's a really good way to show leadership that you're proactive, you're showcasing that you're engaged, you're showcasing that you care, that you want to help other people. Because really being a manager in data science is about that. You're helping other people be successful. So I think that's step one, showing that you're a leader on the team and that you're helping everybody else. And then I would always talk to your manager about getting some informal coaching opportunities. So as you become a little bit more senior, let's say senior data scientist, could you take someone under your wing that's a junior data scientist? And maybe it's not a direct relationship, but you may propose that you have weekly one-on-ones with them, whereas maybe the manager only has bi-weekly one-on-ones. And that gives you the opportunity to be the main point of contact for that person. And so you can informally start to demonstrate that you have management skills, you can informally start to demonstrate that you're able to coach effectively and drive output for this one person. And I think once you show that, then the next stage is usually getting a co-op student that formally reports to you. So if you're able to arrange for that, get a co-op student that formally reports to you. And now you've got formal people management experience where you've had to deal with feedback, you've done performance reviews, for example. And then I think that positions you really well to become a manager. And I would say in terms of timelines, you don't have to do these things. Like I don't like to necessarily put timelines on things, but I mean, if you at least can demonstrate for six months at a time, at the very least, that you can consistently lead and help other people, then that's usually sufficient for a manager to start thinking of you as potentially a leader of the team. Awesome. Thanks for sharing those tips. So in that vein, are there any books or other resources on leadership that you could maybe recommend for aspiring data science managers? Yeah. So to be honest, I don't read a lot of traditional um, leadership books, but I like to read a lot about what motivates people. Um, Just 
basic like psychology books, I guess you could say, or well-summarized psychology books. Um, actually, this is Robert Greene is one of my favorite authors. He's got a lot of books on motivators, like, you know, the 48 Laws of Power is sort of a classic book and just understanding what motivates people. And I think that's a good way to start understanding when you're looking at stakeholders, when you're looking at people that you work with, what potentially motivates them. Drive is another great book. Elephant in the Brain is another great book that I've read. So these are all examples of, again, more so thinking and decision-making and how people make decisions and how they operate in an environment. From a decision-making perspective, I really like Farnham Street. I don't know if anyone knows Shane Parrish, but he's got a blog called Farnham Street. And there's a ton of great resources there on like mental models, how to think through problems, how to solve problems. And so again, I don't read too much about leadership explicitly, but I think what makes you a better leader is understanding other people. So I like to focus on reading books around understanding other people, how people operate. And then ultimately that can help you become a better leader because you learn how to work with people more effectively. Right. Okay, so I think it's time to start summarizing this conversation, which has been very interesting and I'm sure useful. So if you could just, if there were some practices that you wished more data science managers knew that works for effectively leading teams, do you have anything further to share? Yeah, I guess in in summary, I would say always take a people first approach. I mean, at the end of the day, you're working with people. And I think if you don't understand how other people operate and you don't know how to work effectively with others, then you have, (laughs) you struggle as any manager, not just data science, but you struggle, especially in data science, when so much of your value is tied to how much value are you bringing to a business? So I would say definitely focus on learning how other people operate, be a people first leader. So try to create an environment for your team where people feel comfortable working with you, expressing concerns, being able to review code, review work that they're doing, ask questions, Um, create an environment where your team can help each other. So creating an environment where they feel comfortable asking questions of each other and helping each other as well. And just really creating that good culture of collaboration and teamwork. I think to me, those are the top three things I, I would summarize with. Great. Well, Delina, thanks so much for coming on and sharing all your tips and your experience. It has been super valuable to our listeners, I'm sure. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Awesome. So before we wrap up, is there some way people can sort of follow what you're doing online or connect with you? Yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to chat about any topics, data topics, careers, etc. So yeah, send me an invite. I'm happy to chat. Awesome. All right, here at MLOps Live, we'll be back in two weeks. And next time, our guest will be David Hershey. And our topic will be, what does GPT-3 mean for the future of MLOps? So don't miss that one. All right. Thanks, Delina. And thanks, everyone who submitted questions. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, take care and have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time.